Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 8, Bugs. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, entomologist Dr. Sarah Prado. Let's get this show on the road. Sarah, welcome to Carrying Wayward. How are you doing hey, today? Mary, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful. We're so grateful that you agreed to this. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited. This should be fun. For our listeners, I should introduce. This is Dr. Sarah Prado. She's an entomologist from Raleigh, North Carolina. She earned both a master's degree and her PhD from North Carolina State University. Her master's degree investigated the use of parasitic wasps as pest control. And for her PhD project... She studied how pollination of coffee plants differs between incentivized shade coffee plantations and sun plantations in Puerto Rico. She's currently studying the impact of urbanization on insect-plant interactions in the tropics and plans to communicate her findings to the folks in the regional government who can hopefully incorporate these in their future urban development plans. Did I cover anything? Anything else you want to bring up? No, that's perfect. Thank you. So, Sarah, we actually have some questions for you with regards to this episode of Supernatural called Bugs. As you can imagine, we'll be talking about insects, and we have some questions Woo-hoo. for you. Is that yeah, okay I'm you? excited. Shoot. Go for it. Amazing. So, if I can jump right in, the first major scene of this episode, we see beetles crawling inside of somebody and eating them alive. They go in through the ears, the nose, and just eat the entire brain is there even a species of beetles that would do this that would like feed on human tissue and is any part of this in any realm something possible in any way shape or form yeah um well actually like a lot of beetles will feed on um animal tissue and and there's particular beetles that are called carrion beetles that actually are there for dead um, bodies and they're like important decomposers of dead bodies but for like a live human to actually like get in and start eating their brains out it seems a little unrealistic. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that happening. Um, there are like some flies, for example, that can lay their eggs in your skin and then their um, larvae will eat your skin a little bit as they develop. Um, but it's nowhere to the point where you'll die over it or anything like that. So. Yeah, definitely if it's a dead body, it's doable and um, likely. Um, but if it's a live person, I find that a person can easily swat away whatever bug might come their way. <laughs> so on top of the, the lack of realism in terms of, you know, being able to actually swat away the beetles, this scene that Drew described to you, it happens very quickly. Like it's barely three minutes. Can we talk a little bit about the realism or accuracy of this for a beetles to completely destroy a body in three minutes <laughs> a, a, a brain, brain at least. okay yeah i don't think i mean it depends how many beetles there are so for example like this question kind of makes me remember a project that i did when i was like in my first year of my master's degree we like were given piglet carcasses and we had to do some kind of entomological experiment with them And so me and my friend, we decided we were going to put them out in different environments and see how their decomposition varied over time. 
Um, and so it depends on the environment that they are. So like wetter areas might have um, uh, like more swelling of the skin and, and um, just might take a little longer sometimes than drier areas or full sun. Um, so yeah, time differs and also differs with the species that come in. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure that three minutes is a really logical. I guess if you have like a lot of beetles at the brain, they'll eat it away. But uh, yeah, I don't know how, how realistic that would be for like an actual carcass. So throughout this episode, there's kind of this running theme of the main, I guess we can call him the antagonist. He's kind of the I don't believe in the evil spirit guy until suddenly it's happening to him. Uh, his son has a bunch of pet bugs and is very into being out in the woods and uh, watching the insect population and even studying it a bit. And we're kind of led to believe that he is the, I'm air quoting this very hard for people listening, an outcast or a rebel. Is that like a very common thing you see with people when it comes to working with bugs or studying insects? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm like considered an outcast or a rebel. People are usually surprised to hear that I study insects because it's just kind of like a strange thing, I think, when you bring it up. Um, I also don't think that like, having pet insects is much of like a strange thing. I mean, I think it's a little different, but it's probably just as strange as having a, like a lizard or a fish or an amphibian as a pet, because really they don't really interact with you. Um, so insects are just about the same in those ways. I do know like a couple of people that have like, um, these insects called Madagascar hissing cockroaches as pets. And so they're a little, like, maybe, what, like, three inches big, and they're chunky little cockroaches, and they hiss. And so they're, like, dynamic in that they, like, make noise for you. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't think that they're, like, too different from any other non-interactive house pet. But, yeah, I haven't had anybody look at me weird when I say I study insects. They're just usually surprised and curious about it. I have had like some weird comments where they're like, you don't look like what an entomologist should look like. So I wonder what an entomologist should look like. Yeah. <laughs> Not a cool answer. Do insects of different species congregate? I know that you talked a little bit about the lack of interaction with humans when they're being kept as pets, but the teen who likes insects and has them as pets, his name is Matt, and he finds out that bugs are congregating on an ancient indigenous burial ground. I'm just going to ask you to put the ancient indigenous <laughs> burial ground to the side for now. We'll be discussing that critically later. Okay. <laughs> but so do insects of different species congregate? Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense for insects to congregate. If you just think about like agricultural fields, um, that's like a massive mm. food source. So any kind of attraction for resources like food sources or nesting resources will attract insects um so if you think of a large agricultural field you'll have different species of insects eating different parts of the plants you'll have some that are in the soil you have some that are leaf eaters some that are phloem feeders so it's not an abnormal mm -hmm. thing to assume that they'll congregate they won't congregate just for the heck of being close together they'll congregate because there's a, a food source or something that's drawing them in Mm -hmm. So then I suppose that it would make sense for them to congregate on a burial ground because there's a food source in the human remains. Yeah, I guess for the um, decomposing, like the decomposers, the mm -hmm. insects that are there. So, okay. yeah, I think if there's a lot of 
fresh flesh for them to feed on. That would make sense if it's like an ancient burial ground that has basically just bones. It wouldn't make Mm -hmm. too much sense. So somehow we've really gotten deep into this dead bodies and bugs thing. So I'm going to take a step away from those. (laughs) Uh, Near the end of the episode, and this is one of those things where I really go in uh, skeptically, but I'm hoping to get a cool answer from you on this one. Go for it. Uh, they mentioned how bees must have chewed through phone lines and power lines. It Like, a swarm of... And we're talking, like, I think if you've seen this scene, it's, like, tens of thousands. Is that even feasible? Like, regardless of whether they would or wouldn't, which I'm still curious to know, could they? Like, eat actual power lines? I don't think that there would be... Like, chew through a power line? Yeah, I don't think there would be too much reason to do that unless they were like stuck on the other side like if they were that was the only way to exit whatever place they were in um if they had to chew through a path of power lines and they probably would um but there's some bees that particularly do use their mandibles which is like their mouth parts um to chew and so they'll use it to chew through woods for example or plant parts um like carpenter bees i'm sure you've you've seen carpenter bees mm-hmm. cause damage on your fences or whatever wooden structure that you have. So they're using their mandibles and they're just literally chewing away at the at the fibers. Um, so I don't think that any bee would actually just chew through a power line for no reason. The only animal that I know that might chew through something like that is a rat, maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't think a bee would do that. So now that we've actually done a lot of debunking, there's a part that I'm actually really interested in to to talk uh, to you about because the show actually, so the show was shot in 2005, so about 15 years ago, just to kind of situate you. They used actual live bees to film, again, air quote, um, bee battle scene. So at the end, uh, you know, the curse of the insects is at its highest and they're trying to stay alive from all of these bees attacking them. And so the show actually used 60,000 bees to film that scene where the actors are trying to stay alive until the morning in order to outlive the curse. All of the actors actually got stung multiple times and then all that to realize in post-production that the bees didn't actually show well enough on camera and they had to CGI them in. So what are your thoughts about using 60,000 bees in a small space with actors who probably don't have much experience in being around bees in general, let alone so many? Uh, and it's, and also for the bees, I mean, is it dangerous? Is it stressful for them to, to be in those situations? Yeah, uh, I think it's like a pretty hilarious thing that they used 60,000 <laughs> bees and thought that that would be wise to do with actors. <laughs> And that the actors are okay with that. I think that's just kind of funny. Um, and I mean, honestly, I... Um, so, okay, multiple parts to your question. So let me try to focus. Yeah, so, sorry. yeah. So <laughs> a big I question. guess like if the bees... So I assume that they were using honeybees, which is probably the case. Um, honeybees are more domesticated kind of bees. And so they could be moved through with hives. And so usually domesticated honeybees are considered relatively tame, and so they don't behave too erratically when they're around people, but usually I think it's the person that cares for them and knows how to handle them. Honeybees in general, they'll, um, they actually can die when they sting you, and so they will only sting when it's a really dangerous or threatening situation for them because what happens with the honeybees, their abdomens will actually tear off with the stinger, and so it leaves mm-hmm. them 
completely exposed. And so their internal organs just are exposed and, and they can die from that. Um, whereas some other bee species, um, their stinger is kind of more like a, just a needle and it'll just poke you and, and come right out. And so it not, doesn't necessarily kill them when they, when they sting you. One of the wonderful things about working with Supernatural is that they have been around for so long, right? Uh, they've been around for 15 years. So as I said, the episode was filmed in 2005. Were we aware that the bee population was declining? Was it declining? Like, what was the state of that? Yeah, it's very likely that it was declining and it's been declining since then. Um, but apparently the, the colony collapse disorder was first identified in like 2006. So people probably hadn't been um, told or informed about, mm -hmm. you know, caring for the bees the way that we have heard now. And also like, uh, I, I feel like an important point that I need to make is that this it seems like this show focuses on honeybees and there's so many different other species of bees there's over 20,000 species of bee and bees in the world okay. so honeybees um, which are the most common ones that like people know about I guess is not common in terms of numbers but like common in terms of like and like people just being informed about honeybees mm -hmm. are important because they're domesticated and they're used to pollinate crops because they could be brought around but there's native bees that live outside and pollinate the crops um, just as or even more effectively than honeybees. And those populations are really important to think about as well. And I think those have been um, in decline as well. So like bumblebees, those are, those are native bees. Um, and there's a bunch of other bees out there that are native bees. We've learned so much from you. So right away, just a huge thank you for your time. Huge thank you for your sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Honestly, it was such a blast to talk to you. And it, it was so interesting. Thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time and your, and your knowledge. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm glad I could uh, help debunk this, these facts and also share some of the stories that um, made me get to where I am right now. So hopefully some people are going to so decide cool. to study insects too. <laughs> yeah, actually, speaking of which, if there's anyone out there who is interested in following your research, where can they find you online? Yeah, so I have a personal website. It's literally just my entire name.com. So saragtprado.com. Yeah, if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. But there's a lot of knowledgeable people out there that they can reach out to, too. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you Amazing. so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. This has been fun. Well, Drew, now that it's just the two of us again, uh, should we move on to our weekly recap? Yes, I am. I'm ready. I think we can do a two-minute this time because this recap is not much. <laughs> a two-minute recap. All right, let me put that on nope. the clock. All right, three, two, one, start. Some guy's out doing construction. He falls into a hole. He starts freaking out and asking his buddy, like, oh, hurry up and save me. And the other guy takes way too long to find rope, which I find is a little suspicious and weird. And he then has way too many beetles, like hundreds of beetles. And it appears they've crawled inside his head and eaten his brain, and he's just bloody and messy. It's really not that gory of a scene, despite how I described it. It's kind of silly. Uh, this then leads into our episode. The brothers hear about mysterious death and they think it's a mad cow disease. They show up, lie to this guy about being a nephew. He takes them to the home. They investigate. They go, oh, it doesn't seem like ghosts. The only thing we can find is this one little bug. They check out the town. They meet a kid who's really into bugs, whose father is trying to sell these houses. 
uh, more people get attacked by bugs and die, and they ultimately find what appears to be a Native American burial ground with bones, and they take it to some small town where they believe people who might have been related to this tribe are still alive. They then get this story about the white man coming in and I will be very vague here, doing terrible things to their people and leaving most of them, if not all of them dead. And they then put a curse on them. The, 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 the native put a curse on the white people uh, for being terrible, which they deserve. And, we then get that curse now coming back all these years later to affect this family for just trying to live on this land, which is clearly not theirs. And anticlimactically, the curse just ends because daybreak. The end. Okay, I got terrible giggles as you were telling the story because it is incredibly accurate. And it is just so ridiculous. You have 13 seconds left if there's anything you'd like to add. Oh, wow, really? Uh, no, I'm good to just sort of move on because this episode, <laughs> I know, has a rap for being a bad episode. Yeah, And it is. I know at the top of the episode, we discuss, I think, the most fun we're going to have this episode, discussing bugs with a professional. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, this episode just sort of seems like, this is that moment where someone had an idea that was good on paper, and then they got to the point and went, oh, no, this isn't going to work. But let's keep doing it anyways, because... mm. (laughs) I would just like to add a few things to your recap that I I think (laughs) are going to be important for later on. So the first one is that there's... It's the first time that we're hearing a joke about Sam and Dean being a couple. So they're mistaken for a couple. Um, They correct the person. They're like, no, we're brothers. Move on. Um, let's just note that for now. We'll get back to it at some other point. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that I'd like to note is that the boys are told that you can't break a curse, right? Like you said, the curse just anticlimactically ends because daybreak. Um, Yeah. You just have to wait it out. But this isn't actually true in the rest of the series where the boys do end up breaking curses. They end up breaking curses that run much deeper than this one. And so, I mean, we can look at that as part of the story that you know they didn't they just didn't know that you could break curses or we can look at it more critically and say um you know that's just it just got retconned right so it, it really depends how we decide to look at it yeah i guess from a lore perspective you can kind of go off this sort of like we did with the, their first encounter with a demon it's just you don't know mm-hmm. so you're going off the hearsay what you have in dad's journal what you've heard from other hunters because you said it but i don't think it's ever actually explicitly stated until the brothers are asked they're never told the curse can't be broken like they're given the story and they're told what's going to happen but the person giving them the information or anyone involved in this never says you can't break a curse there's no way around it they just get asked how do we stop this and the brothers go you can't break a curse you just have to outrun it it's that's true but the indigenous person that they meet does tell them that the that the curse ends at the beginning of the day does he not yeah no he definitely says it lasts until sunrise and whatever choice of words he gives yes but that doesn't implicitly tell me as someone who's dealing with it that there's no way around it point taken let's move into story time 
right, Drew. So, as yes. you said, this episode is a bad episode. Um, at least in my yeah. opinion, it is. Right? Um, and I have to give a bit of a disclaimer before we move into story time that I have watched this episode more times in the past week than I have in the past four years. Because <laughs> I really I'm very it. sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm so sorry you've had to do this. Like, if this show has done anything dark, I hope this is the worst it gets for you. It's not. But... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I'm not excited for whatever that next part is, but I'm kind of excited. I just, I think it's overall a bad episode, but the, but, but, and this is where it gets important. The fact that it's bad doesn't mean that we can't or that we shouldn't try to make meaning out of this story. Oh, 100%. Um, Right? I mean, we could just sit here and laugh at how terrible the episode is, which we will do a little bit. Yep. I have, but, I have, I have research. <laughs> right, but to just do that would be a disservice, I think, to our mission, um, mm-hmm. which is to understand and to make meaning out of the show one episode at a time. By really taking this seriously and treating the story as sacred and discussing it with an open mind, we're actually bringing rigor to our process, and we'll be able to evaluate just how rigorous our process was by looking at the depth of our conversation once we're done. Mm. Um, and also our engagement with the source material, with the actual TV show. So I guess this is like an invitation for you and me, particularly me, <laughs> and a <laughs> reminder um, to take this episode seriously and to sort of put a pin in the critical elements at least for this segment, for for story time. What do you think about that? I think that's a very fair assessment. At the end of the day, I know us very well. We will giggle, we will laugh, we will share yes. a fun moment here and there over a multitude of things. But at the end of the day, we've done this with other episodes that are much more serious and much more mm-hmm. enjoyable, and we've laughed and we've shared and we've learned. So there's no reason why we can't do it here. The things mm-hmm. we might be laughing at might be due to less than impressive storytelling or Mm. direction or terrible CGI. Like, just, wow. (laughs) We we were going to harp on that one later. We do touch on some very interesting points, which when we get into the story, I think are very important and are topics that need to be spoken about outside of the show, just in the general world. So this actually brings us to my very first question for you. I have a few questions for you today. Mm-hmm. The first one is, what do you think the bugs are a metaphor for? I think they connect very well with the very forward-facing story we are given in this episode, which, mm-hmm. if we can touch on quickly as well, is the connection between Sam and this boy, Matt. Okay. In the sense that they are the family outcast they are into Mm -hmm. a thing or they want to go a different way than the family wants them to Mm, and we see this very clearly with sam leaving to go to school and have a air quote normal life and not be a hunter like his dad would want him to be Mm -hmm. and we have matt who is a fan of insects and bugs and treats them with a level of knowledge and information and interest that most people would consider icky or gross or not up their alley Mm mm-hmm but that is what bugs are. I mean, for so many people, bugs, insects, spiders, arachnids, the creepy crawlies are a very common fear. They're a thing mm-hmm. that most people just go, I don't want to know about. They are gross. They're nasty. They scare me. They're, they're not for me. Mm-hmm. But as we learned with Sarah, 
in our interview section, they are a vital part of the ecosystem. They are very interesting creatures. They are mm-hmm. incredible in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But on the surface, people just go, ick, no. So to you, the bugs are about the people that we underestimate. Yeah. Okay. You look at the people who don't fit the mold of society. You look mm-hmm. at the people who are a little different or icky or gross or just not doing things your way. Mm-hmm. And they're a sort of an immediate, you know, not for me. I saw something completely different. So what did you see then? Right? Okay, so I saw the bugs as the problems that we have with our loved ones. Uh, you know, our family's dirty laundry in a way. Um, you know, when there's just a handful, it's easy to like just deal with them or swap them away. But when we let them accumulate, they can literally bring down the house and harm us really badly in the process. How could they have such brilliant, thought-provoking writing? And I'm going to I'm gonna say, you know what, I'm going to give them credit, even if all three of these or multiple angles we're looking at aren't exactly what they were thinking, that we're able to perceive these so easily from the context. Mm-hmm. Yet make such a trash episode out of it. I think it's impressive, Drew. That it's is... really impressive. Yeah, I feel like this is uh, a hall, uh, like a hallmark of supernatural in so many ways. Because there's this running joke in the fandom that you don't actually watch the show for the story or the plot; you watch it for the characters. And I think that this is one of those episodes where really the plot isn't great but it's about the characters and to see how they deal with that situation and how Mm -hmm. they develop and and what does the plot actually say about the characters so we learn a lot in this episode about the boys and their relationship with john particularly as they were growing up Mm -hmm. and as you've hinted at previously this is a very sam centric episode um again you know where we hear sam speaking his truth about his upbringing which is really heartbreaking and wonderful Um, And he's dissatisfied and disappointed with it, to say the very least, right? He says, like, you know, how we were raised was jacked. He talks about how difficult his relationship is or was with John. He doesn't know what the relationship is like now because it's basically non-existent. And I want us to notice that he talks to Matt about that because Dean isn't able to give him the emotional support that he would need. Dean is actually defending John at every turn, whenever he gets a chance. And he doesn't really listen to Sam, which makes it really impossible to have a real conversation about it. Dean makes fun of Sam with his Johnisms, you know, for taking advanced placement science classes in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you think about it, Sam really is basically a statistical anomaly because, like, he didn't have a stable upbringing. Um, he didn't he wasn't even always in school. He went through a ton of trauma before he he even reached 18 years old, but he still got a full right to Stanford. He was going into law. Um mm-hmm. this would have made like most parents so proud. Yeah. But that's but that's not what he got from John. And I I think that Sam is just so deeply disappointed by that. And at the end of the day like that's what this is, right? Sam is disappointed in his dad. And and being disappointed with your parents is just always so challenging to navigate. And Dean just isn't able to do it yet. No, uh, anytime, I think you hit that point in your life when you look at your parents not so much as 
all-knowing forces of good that are above you and are only there to do support for you, which I hope more people have had in their life and still do. But you eventually hit that point in your life, and some people it's younger than others, and some people it's older. But you get to the point where you realize your parents are just human, and they have their own flaws and issues and your differences and your your connections. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Sam realized this really, really early on when he realized he wasn't like John. Mm -hmm. And then there's Dean who, despite the flaws that even he has acknowledged in the show to this point disregards them because John is effectively perfect and nothing John could ever do would be wrong because he's dad. Mm, Yeah. A slight nuance to that Mm -hmm. is to notice that there's a moment near the end where Matt, Matt, so they're talking on the phone and Matt tells Sam that his dad won't listen to him. You know, they're trying to get him to evacuate the house and Sam replies, you have to make him listen. And that moment to me is so interesting because Dean takes the phone and tells Matt to lie. He tells him to tell his dad that he has a sharp pain in his right side and that he needs to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And like, as you said, throughout the episode, Dean has been defending John. He's even, you know, like he's even criticizing the housing development, saying that he'd take, you know, his family over this any day. His Johnisms are like truly on display at that point. When the shit really hits the fan... Exactly. He has to have this moment where he, like, you know, has to give the advice that I suspect he would follow in that scenario, which is lie. Exactly. Like, as much as, you know, John is flawless and perfect, if I needed something from John that I couldn't get him to listen to me, and he wouldn't just believe me, air quotes, mm-hmm. he would just lie to him. He is pointing out a flaw in his own father exactly. because at this moment he understands that okay, fine, there's some flaws, and here's how you get around them, but, like, it's an exception. Like, he's admitting Mm -hmm. that he's wrong without really admitting it. But, you know, it's so interesting to me because it's not, like, he's admitting it, like, oh, fine, maybe. Like, he says it as if it's a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And to me, that brings up the question of how much does Dean actually trust his father? This is a tough episode for Dean, as much as this is a Sam-centric one, like, that moment says so much about him because what he's doing by sticking up for John, even though John is literally ignoring them, like he hasn't called them back since mm-hmm. Sam's girlfriend was killed in the same way that their mother died, you know, yeah. all those years ago. This is behavior of kids who were raised in very unstable environments. Like this is a sign of childhood trauma and it's just, it's so on display. And like it just, it's the beginning of a pattern that we're seeing in Dean where he says one thing, but he actually does or yearns for another thing. And like in this case, <laughs> what he says is influenced by his upbringing and his trauma and what he does or what he yearns for is so much closer to his actual character. You know, had he not been forced into a life of violence and instability And that leads me to another question for you. Ooh, please. Which is, how much then can we really trust what Dean says? Can we really take that at face value? My first instinct, and I will speak it because halfway through my sentence, I will eventually find a way to flip my my, (laughs) uh, thought process because I tend to do this to myself. But my first instinct is yes, because ultimately, I'm already doubting myself. (laughs) Ultimately, what he is trying to do is 
almost like that kind of excuse of like the white lie that just makes it a little easier like you know mm-hmm. just the, like, one white lie is better than like trying to explain the truth to somebody in yeah, like, like exactly in like in that scene it's like or even in this episode like the example you gave over the phone it's easier to tell your dad i have a sharp pain and lie to him because it'll work mm. and then you may or may not deal with the repercussions later versus the truth which he might not listen to and he won't believe and yeah it's the right thing to do dean ultimately goes i trust john i trust my father when Dean says that he would never exchange his childhood for, like, a normal white picket fence home, you believe that? I do, but I feel like he yearns to know what it would have been like. Mm. Like, he's the kind of person who goes, well, I have no idea. Puh, I don't care. I don't want that. Mm. But deep down inside goes, like, but maybe if I had experienced it, then I could compare them properly and go, oh, you know what? I see what I got, what I what I left out on. But that's just it. He got to experience it. He remembers what normal feels like. Sam doesn't. Mm. Dean does. Damn, that is true. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying that we can't trust Dean or that we can't trust what he says. But I think I'm just trying to frame it in a way that. What comes out of Dean's mouth, especially in the early seasons, is John. It's what Mm -hmm. John has, like, basically brainwashed him to say. Yeah, and if we look at it from that same angle, like we see in this episode, that he has a moment of, hey, as much as I say John is infallible, I need you to do this thing that would go against the Mm Johnisms, which is lying to somebody. It shows that even though he has a very clear mission statement and facade to him, that there are clearly cracks in it, and yeah. though sometimes those cracks will show. Yeah, and I mean, just with the shower thing, right? Like, he says that he doesn't want a house like this. He doesn't want to live there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's so against it. But, oh, my God, that shower, though. Mm-mm. You know, so it... I mean, I've used a steam shower, so yeah, I get yeah. it. <laughs> so, but that's, that, I think that's the point I'm trying to make, right? And like the no, you're right. The, what I'm trying to bring to Dean is like, just so that we see that he is more complex than he seems. Where like mm-hmm. a lot of the time he's he's portrayed as like this very simple, like oh no, I don't need any luxury, like I don't want anything. But at the end of the day, like the things that Dean's that that Dean actually loves most so far is like comfort creature comforts yeah. yeah i think if i had to look at dean right now and go what would dean's ideal end goal be it would be defeat all the demons so i can go have a normal life and also we didn't really touch on this so i'm just gonna throw it in here and just steal this for a moment i hate the ending what part of it exactly we have this entire character development moment where we learn that Sam was right this whole time, that he's allowed to live his own life. Yeah. And even though he didn't see it, John was proud of him and loved him and, like, you know, followed him around to at least keep a tag on him. And, like, you know, Dean says, like, he was proud of you. He may have not shown it, but it was. That, like, you were right. You were justified in the way you were feeling. And then Matt just like, I don't like Bugs anymore. Drew, I, I, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but, like, buckle up, man, because... Oh no. Yeah. And I agree with you. That's one of the one of my big disappointments with this episode. It's that we're seeing that like Sam's vision of his dad and Dean's vision of his dad are basically like meeting somewhere in the middle where like I mean, I don't 
I don't love the idea of like John following his son around and like checking up on him while he's not oh, yeah, aware no, of it. Oh yeah, no, it definitely like, has problematic connotations. Yes, one hundred percent. So I don't love that. Um, and I think that to me, like the thing that was most salient is that at the end of the day, Sam was right about his dad. You know, like their upbringing was was messed up and. And in Dean's tiny little admission about, no, you have to lie to your dad. Like, we saw that. Like, we saw that vindication moment where, like, no, Sam, like, what you have lived and your feelings about your father are justified. And at the end, he goes, I can't wait to find dad. And it's just, like, all of this character development, like, to see that you were actually right about your interpretation of events, only to say that you actually want to see him back. Like, it's just... It's taking one step forward and taking, like, three steps back. And again, I feel like this is a recurring theme, unfortunately, in, in the series. I'm gonna fight you on that point just a little oh, bit, please actually. please do. Please do. I, I read that differently. I okay. feel like Dean saying that is almost admitting that up to this point, finding Dad was just an obligation because he's Dad, we have to. But now... There is a level of, I want closure. I want to thank dad for at least being proud of me. And I want to reconcile with him. And I want to be a mature adult and speak to him and find our common footing and have a relationship again. He, this is the turning point where Sam goes from, I'm doing this because I have to, to I'm doing this because I want to, and I'm doing it for me. Yes, I will take that point because I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I just, the thing is, like, we don't yet know all of the things that John Winchester has done to these kids. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it hasn't been stated, and so I can't fault you for, for not knowing that. I just, I want to be careful that our messaging here on this podcast is not, like, you should reconcile with people who have abused you when they were in a position of power. And that's why I'm being so reluctant to actually say what you're saying, because from your standpoint, not knowing all of that, it makes total sense. But from mine, knowing what I know about John Winchester and, and, and Sam and Dean's upbringing, which we will learn mm -hmm. throughout the seasons, I, don't, I wouldn't be mad if Sam didn't want to find his dad. I would be okay with it and I would understand it and I would think that he is very valid in his decision. In Critical Time, I definitely want to focus on one particular aspect of the show. Cool. And that is the visual effects. I know we discussed much earlier on during our interview with Sarah that they did actually rent out, what was it, 60,000 60, bees? 60,000 bees, yeah. That's according, I, I just which... wanna, I'm so sorry. I just want to um, cite my source on this. I read this on IMDb, and it seems like the, the, the information came from various sources, and so I, I would tend to believe it. So that's, that's where it comes from. This episode had some terrible visuals. Yeah. Just, I've commented before how things looked a little bit cheesy or old, mm -hmm. but this episode, like, the bugs like some of the bugs i i assume were real because they were really well done and they seem too natural mm -hmm. and this show can barely do the green screen when they're in the car properly without me noticing mm -hmm. um still the most difficult thing to watch on a really high res screen these days <laughs> but visually 
like the spiders in the shower, even just the fake spiders under her towel when they go and investigate the crime scene at mm. the second uh, death. It's just awful effects. If there's anything we've learned from horror movies or this or anything in the suspense genre, you are so much better off with practical effects when you can. Yeah. So I understand the want for the bees because it would have looked better if it had worked on film and maybe in modern technology with more powerful cameras and better screens it would have. But you could have gotten away with so much more by just showing less. Yeah. I mean, just to speak to that, Drew, like this episode used to be rated a 6.6 on IMDb, which is very low for a supernatural episode. It's mm-hmm. it's currently rated a 7. That's really only because after the final episode came out, people specifically went back and rated bugs higher to show how upset they were with the finale. <laughs> I think that's such a perfect message like to show how hated this episode is. Yes. That people had to go back and increase its rating yes. to say, we hate this the most, and now we hate it second from most. Well, so, until recently, it was actually in the bottom three of the entire series. Out of 327 episodes in total. So, wow. this episode is also specifically called out later in the series as having been badly written. Uh, and that's when the show starts getting very meta. It gets called out by name for being bad. Oh, God. So, I, I mean, I, we made jokes earlier about it being bad and how, and, and, and we said that we have to take it seriously and that's all true. But it, I think it's very important to just keep in mind that this is not a great episode. No. And despite that, as I kind of worked myself into in the previous section... It does touch on some very sensitive material in a, uh, I'm going to say semi-respectful. I feel like it could have been handled better, their treatment of the indigenous people, but at least the message they, the the really blunt message they want to hit the audience with of, you know, settlers came in, colonized, and took this land away and did terrible things to a people, and Mm. those people in return put a curse it almost goes back to what we said earlier about the whole, like, you can't break a curse, you have to outrun it, or and we mm-hmm. find out later that isn't true. I honestly almost like that in the sense of, no, you can't break this curse because they're right. Ooh. I'm very torn about this, personally, because as much as I agree with the point that you're making, I'm also seeing, like, the flip side of that coin, where, you know, when things go wrong, historically, we've tended to... We as humans have tended to point the finger at various peoples. And I just feel like in this case, you know, they couldn't really, they didn't, like it felt like a crutch, a writing crutch, where they didn't Mm -hmm. really know how to explain that all of these bugs were doing this, that, and the other thing. And so they're like, oh, indigenous peoples. Yeah, for sure. They're the ones who are responsible for that. And so I understand your point and I, I, I agree with it. But then there's also that side of it that I think also, like, it cohabits. They cohabit. They they, they live in the same space. Um, yeah. So I feel yeah, no. I feel uneasy about it overall. Yeah, I think you, you kind of hit that feeling I was getting to that I couldn't quite uh, verbalize, and I thank you for doing so. It really feels like it was an afterthought. Yeah. They needed an excuse for the bugs and whatever they had originally 
thought about or maybe had written and was not good enough they fell on this as a as a crutch as you say as i always say i feel like it's a catchphrase at this point at least like again we kind of do the silver lining moments they kind Mm -hmm. of like we tried not to apologize for them but to at least say hey they did something good at least yeah they by cramming in the oh it's an indigenous people's curse they at least educated the audience in some small way that well here's a thing that happened that we assume most people know about but as Mm -hmm. i have learned recently there's a lot of history that gets swept away in a lot of places oh yeah i mean think of who gets to write history exactly the amount of history that is skewed to the winner is i mean Mm -hmm. everything Mm -hmm. but in this case it's taking a fact and tying into the show Mm -hmm. which hopefully has led some people to at least look into it read up on it research it and learn Mm -hmm. but it's like crammed in for no reason like had we gotten a bit more you know what i'm not going to say yet because that is definitely going to end up being my crossroads deal Mm. but uh you can now see where i'm going with it so i hope i'm not stealing yours but suffice it to say yes the double-edged sword of they crammed this in almost as a last resort to get a we need a reason for antagonist. Yeah. But at least in doing so said, hey, we can give a message to people that might be worth sharing. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. I I will I will take that. And um Yeah, I'll take that. That's that's true. Like I said, the two like the two sides of that coin live on the same coin. And so mm-hmm. one is true and the other one is true as well. So I agree with you. And it's yeah. it's just interesting because, you know, a lot of our critique of this episode was also discussed earlier with Dr. Prado, with Sarah. Mm-hmm. And there's there's still so much to look at. Like, I mean, like we said, the fact that the curse originates from indigenous peoples, like we've talked about that. The fact that Dean uses a can of bug spray as a flamethrower. Oh, my God. Please don't ever do this at home. You will injure yourself badly. You will burn down your house. Um, you will get your jacket caught on fire. And your mom will get mad at you because your really expensive jacket has burn marks on it now. Are you Not saying that you example. have done this? What? No, I have never done this. Oh, my God. It was Axe Body Spray. <laughs> Another thing that... I think would deserve some critique and some thought, but we've decided that we're not going to go into that today. We'll deep into that a bit deeper uh, in another episode. And it's the joke about Sam and Dean being a couple. So like we said, and we're going to stick to that. We're going to talk about that in a different episode, but I think that we can't just let it go because it's the first time that it happens. It will happen again. And, And there's lots to talk about about that. Yeah, it really, it comes across as a throwaway joke, even though it's repeated twice, Mm -hmm. uh, which is actually another small critical point I want to bring up real quick, Mm -hmm. uh, is this show has a tendency to repeat itself. Very much so. I agree. And especially around real world myths. So something I really enjoy the show doing is when they reference something in the real world or actual mythology uh, I believe we dug a little deeper on this in, again, Phantom Traveler when we discussed the actual haunted flight they bring up and how mm-hmm. it's a real event that occurred. Yeah. In this episode, there is a moment where they liken the possibility of Matt being controlling the bugs mm-hmm. and compare him to Willard. And they make a point of doing that twice in this very short sentence. Mm-hmm. Like, they really want to drive the point home of, hey, yeah. 
were making a cheeky reference. Mm-hmm. And it actually led me down a bit of a rabbit hole of research because I don't know how I got the idea in my mind. And I'm trying to figure out where it came from, but I can kind of see how I did it. Willard is actually referencing a character from a book later made into a movie about a man who would appear to be somewhat mentally challenged, living with his, I believe, just his mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he is uh, led to try to get all the rats out of their house and eventually feels bad for the rats and becomes their friends and gains a psychic link with them and becomes kind of a sociopath in using his rat followers to do things and is often thought to be kind of like a darker retelling of a modern version of the Pied Piper. Oh, which I is see. Already incredibly dark if we dig into that one. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, no, every version of that story is just dark. But I don't know where and I don't want to present false facts, so I'm almost doing this more as a if you're a listener and you can find me the connection. I believe there are some versions of the legend of the Pied Piper where the Piper's name is actually Willard, which is why they named the character in that movie mm. Willard. But I could not find... I, I don't know why I knew this. And then I just couldn't find the link anywhere in any of my research. But you know what? This is also one of those things like where folklore meets modern day research, right? So like mm-hmm. you've heard this from somebody at some point. You've read this somewhere at some point. And, and that's, that's literal folklore. Mm-hmm. Compare this to modern day research where we have such easy access to so much information and like it clashes, right? Because when you can't confirm that thing that you heard at some point, well then like, is it real or is it not? Like there's nothing that says that what you're saying is not real, but we just can't necessarily confirm it. No. And I think that's a good point too, because I think we do touch on a lot of legends and lore in this show mm-hmm. that we do I, I super passionately love diving into and learning more about i have a huge huge passion for demonology and the occult just in passing so i'm used to that kind of effect but i would still love if there's more information out there that i've missed and you as a listener go "Ooh, i have some information send <laughs> it my way yes so i had some trouble thinking about this one as I often do, I, I very, I have a lot of thoughts about every episode. And with this one, I thought I was going to go with a very simple, you know, like, let's redo this without the CG and do it more mystery. Think Jaws, where you just have to, like, imply versus show. But you made me think about it. And I think I would have liked to have seen, in whatever method this would have taken, a bigger focus on the indigenous people and... Mm-hmm. Whether it be completely fictional lore or some, if there is, I actually regret not researching this more now. Mm -hmm. If there is any lore with this particular tribe and people and a connection to nature and even just bugs and insects Mm -hmm. and incorporated that more. I think you could tell a story and let's, let's remove ourselves one step further. Let's put a fictional tribe of indigenous people here. Mm-hmm. let's not target any one specific group or nation or reserve let's really just go with a group that is indigenous to this land a fictional tribe give them a fictional lore which they discover over the episode and learn about the curse and why the bugs are relevant that suddenly ties all this together better and then you could even get away with the you're right there is no way to break this curse we have to just outrun it mm-hmm. because 
it is magic based in being right. This isn't someone saying, I'm putting a hex on you because you did something nasty. This is, you did something terrible. The people you wronged are seeking balance and they have put a curse on this land. Mm-hmm. Heck, I would even go as far as saying it's not, I would lose the term curse and say it's like a cosmic balancing they do. Like, that's why you mm-hmm. can't break because it isn't a curse, quote unquote. It is a cosmic, it's nature's way of balancing the scales. This isn't just, oh, they put a curse on you because you did bad. This is nature saying, no, no, we have to correct this. Mm. Okay. 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 It's It's so interesting because like, I'm going in that direction. Oh. But completely the opposite way. <laughs> I'm so excited. Where my deal is to remove the indigenous part entirely because I feel that it's just unnecessary and it promotes harmful stereotypes. It just it like it's the the raisin bread conundrum where like if you want to remove the raisins from a bread with raisins, like, you just have to toss it and then bake it again. Like, you can't remove the raisins from raisin bread. It tastes like raisins. Mm. I would just remove the indigenous part of this entirely. And instead, like, this is going to be one of those rare times where I say that. But, like, instead, give us more stories of the brothers growing up with John. I will rarely ask for more brother time. But this is one of those times where I just feel like anything is better than to represent indigenous peoples as vengeful, right? Like, that's that's my direction with it. I, I really like that we've kind of landed at this very literal crossroads between yes. us. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, you're also right. Your point is very valid. They do, in including indigenous people as the, I, I refuse to say, the villain Mm -hmm. they are very much the victim and this is their vengeance story which again Mm -hmm. i think is just a huge theme in the show up to this point Mm -hmm. i feel like will be for many 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 seasons Mm -hmm. yes so i can see that but you're right it really does vilify them and make them seem like very Mm two-dimensional stereotypical characters as much as i genuinely enjoyed the um the the wise old storyteller they do meet mm, in the uh yeah. the shady little bar yeah, yeah. deli restaurant. I, I thought he was just a very charming character. He was well written. I feel like he wasn't he was stereotypical in the sense of if I had to write that character, I could only because I've met that person before. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of the things they did with his character were stereotypical in the sense of they were mocking him or making fun of him. Yeah, I agree with you. No, no, for sure. Like, I think for all the flaws there are with just slapping them in there as a reason for curse, insert indigenous person here, that bad. But at least when they put them in, they had a little bit of care about it. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. I think the the two angles they could have taken were either remove them Mm -hmm. and find a more supernatural, spooky reason for this thing. Yeah. Or really go all in on it and do it respectfully. I, You know what? Those are the only two ways that they could have gone. And they chose the half-ass, like, let's just mm-hmm. pepper this in because we have to make it make sense. But I agree yeah. with you entirely. It was one or the other. You've been 
listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Dr. Sarah Prado for spending time with us and sharing her expertise on insects. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. And lately, we've had people ask what they can do in order to help us out. Please, if you would like to do that, Uh, leave us a review on whatever platform you choose, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Listen Notes, whatever you choose. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at CarryingWayward. And don't forget to send us a voicemail at CarryingWayward at gmail.com. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends.